When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a deep pain. It's a psychic pain. I mean, Asian Americans now are America's highest educated group, and everyone thinks we're so successful. But as I put it, Asian Americans are the most successful people until age 30, and then we're the least successful people after that. So we have this age 30 problem because we're the last ones to get promoted. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success, and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work, nor having the impact you seek? then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, this is Michael Winderoth, and you're listening to 97% effective. Why don't many Asians speak up in meetings? Why are Asians the first hired and last promoted in corporate America, as well stated in the Ascend study? In this continuation episode, we explore this important topic with Joy Chen, CEO of the Multicultural Leadership Institute, the MLI. Last week, we discussed with Joy her own career path, growing up as Chinese-American in the U.S., how she rose to the top of three industries without ever submitting a resume, and UAF, Useful, Amazing, and Free, her secret sauce to ascending. In that conversation, we touched on the central role of confidence, connection, and influence to rising to the top of the corporate ranks in the U.S., and some of the barriers that hold Asians and Asian Americans back. In this episode, we're going to look deeper at the work Joy and the MLI does in two core areas, helping Asians and Asian Americans crack the code to rising in corporate America through her accelerator, and the speaking work she does with C-suites and boards of Fortune 50 companies, helping them enable leadership for all. We also end with an unexpected discovery I made about one of Joy's first jobs, a story that should inspire us all. Hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did recording it. Talking about the MLI and the work that you're doing now, and you look at this from two angles, so I want to talk about both of these. What individuals can do, Asian Americans, your accelerator course, you know, things that they need to be in tune with and doing, but also it's a system, right? There's those who are in leadership and they can make immense change. 
they tend to hold more power. Um, and so you work with the, both of these groups. And, and if we could kind of look at, at each of them, the one part around working with Asian Americans and your course, and, and I'll just talk to one because it's another great free resource that you've got. Uh, we'll put a link to it. But just talk about this that I mentioned at the outset. Right, the Asians on my team don't speak up, or you know, all the people in my company are are bloviating, talking about things that don't matter. Um, and this is a very deep pain. It is the truth. It comes up all the time in the Asian American community. Of what do they need to do to navigate this? Do they just need to mimic? Can you talk, you know, a little bit about the nuances here of what's important to be thinking about from a if you're an Asian American out there um, who may face this challenge? Yeah. Yeah, you know, when you say it's a pain, it's a deep pain. It's a psychic pain. I mean, um, Asian Americans now are America's highest educated group, and everyone thinks we're so successful. But as I put it, Asian Americans are the most successful people until age 30, and then we're the least successful people after that. So we have this age 30 problem because we're the last ones to get promoted, right? We're 6% of the population, 13% of the workforce, and 1.5%. Of Fortune 500 corporate officers, so that is a lot of it's a lot of financial pain. You know, this would be millions over the course of our career, and because wealth in the United States is built generationally, the implications, the financial implications alone, are massive for every one of us as well as for our families. And then there's just a huge amount of psychic pain that you point out: the daily frustration of seeing people around us get promoted and feeling like. That should be me, right? So, so I guess, you know, one thing is I built out this. So I have this Asian American Leadership Accelerator. So it's a six-week online course mm-hmm. on the unwritten rules of the game. That's the first four. And then later on, I'll, I'll do the second four because I have eight unwritten rules of the game. And it's funny, Michael. I first created this course to be really focused on networking because most of the questions I get around networking mm-hmm. How do I create the network I need to like pull in these lucky opportunities? But um, when I started leading this course, I found I just put in one module, which I thought this is what no one else has asked for me, but which has been what I, looking back, realized that I really needed. And it was about how to get deeply grounded within ourselves, how to truly embrace and get grounded in ourselves. Because this is not something that, you know, Asian cultures necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about growing up. You know, we're all focused on external, external achievements like winning math competitions and getting perfect grades. So we're always looking for external validation. But how do we learn to get deeply rooted in ourselves? This is incredibly important because in Western societies, you know, being fully confident is how people evaluate you. People can't even tell if you're competent. People just look at your confidence to see if you're competent. So if you don't have that full respect and love and trust for yourself, then you'll never get anywhere because people have, you know, strong BS meters. And and so they'll see through you if you're sort of performing that way. The other really important part of this is that because of a conscious bias, you know, unconscious bias, all these little slings and arrows that we get they cause a continuous loss of self. And that's why we have things like imposter syndrome, right? So it's super important to get, I would say, out of, out of all of these unwritten rules, 
counterintuitively, the one that's not about connecting with others is perhaps the most important. Mm. It's about connecting with our own yeah. selves. And, and what's like a, a simple first practical step that someone can take on this, you know, to use the, how do we operationalize it, which is a lot what the course and coaching is around, but what's a, what's a first step that someone could take? Yeah, I think that it's starting to get super, super conscious of our self-talk and how other people talk to us. I'll give you a very quick example from my own career. There was a time when I was, I was a young individual contributor and I had an opportunity to make a presentation, you know, a 10-minute um, PowerPoint presentation to the senior leaders of my firm and the vice chairman of the firm was going to be there. And this guy was like really powerful in the firm, maybe the most powerful person. And he had a reputation for being like, incredibly smart and not suffering any fools. So I was so excited about this opportunity. I spent like three months preparing this PowerPoint, like every detail on the, every slide, the data, making sure it was all backed up, all the footnotes, you know, on the slides. And, and then I was in front of the mirror and I was practicing and I practiced like every pause, every gesture, everything. Like I really wanted to get this nailed down because I thought this is my big chance. So the day arrived and I gave the presentation and, you know, it, it, my hands were shaking, but it seemed to go okay. And then afterwards, I was just so relieved. And um, yeah, there was a little reception afterwards and I was just kind of taking a deep breath at the reception. And that vice chairman was like next to me and um, he asked me a question. He had his little coterie of, you know, his minions and they were all there and he asked me a question and it surprised me for my presentation. And I didn't, like, I was so shocked that I just said the first thing that came out of my mouth. And I, um, and as soon as I said it, I knew it was wrong. And he knew it was wrong. And all of his minions knew it was wrong. And he just looked at me like, and he just turned around and he walked away. And all of his minions looked at me and turned around and walked away. And I was so humiliated, you know, and it was like, it was such a letdown because I'd worked so hard for that. And for three months afterwards, I couldn't sleep. Like I just kept, you know, I thought, God, I'm such an idiot. You know, what, you know, uh, you know, I was so humiliated. And, um, you know, I still think about that. My skin crawls. And I think that, just in memory of how, you know, how I reacted. So the thing is that these kinds of things, these subtle acts of exclusion, maybe it would happen because I was Asian. Maybe it didn't. Maybe I was just like a little minion. I think more likely he, you know, he probably kind of reacts that way to everyone. He probably wouldn't react that way to a rising star. You know, he probably wouldn't react that way to the chairman of the firm. But I was, because I was isolated powerless. It gave him permission. And most of us who are Asian Americans are more isolated and powerless. So looking back, you know, to your question, what should we do in that kind of instance? I think, first of all, you know, let's think about what went wrong here. Number one, um, so what was the problem? Was the problem that I made a mistake or was the problem that for three months I berated myself for being an idiot, right? One is kind of minor thing that we do every day. But the second thing, like you are such an idiot, um, is a huge emotional concept that really has very little to do with 
I made a mistake, right? But that so immobilized me. Like, what should I have done? I should have maybe sent him an email the next day and said, you know, hey, Mike, you asked me a good question. Um, I thought I thought about it and I did a little research and here's your answer, right? Or if I was more in the moment at that reception, you know, maybe I could have gone out, taken a deep breath and come back to show him and his minions that they don't scare me and that um, I could have said, uh, you know, hey, I... Um, you asked me a good question just now and I realized that I might have misspoke. Would you mind if I get do a little research and get back to you in the morning? You know, I could have saved that right away. And yet I didn't, you know, and yet it was like, I think it harkened back to a whole lifetime of feeling like my whole identity, my whole whatever was, was hanging on to some external validation you know, and I think part of that is a very deep thing about the fact that he was so much higher than me in the firm, right? And I think that as Asians, we have a very deep respect for authority. But it created this whole thing of cycle of shame and self-recrimination that was hard for me to get out of. So I would say that the, the advice would be to start listening to what we say to ourselves and, and noticing that, like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Well, that doesn't seem so helpful or useful, right? And just to start noticing that and to start thinking about where does this self-talk come from? And to, you know, I, I started for years, started thinking about like, there's a little bird on my shoulder, like an owl who's really wise and who's observing the thoughts and feelings that are going through my head. And, you know, and when something doesn't seem quite right, you know, over time, you know, starting to watch that thought leave my head and replace with something useful. Like, so replacing negative thoughts and feelings with useful action, right? So at any time, like I never got back to that person. That vice chairman, probably a week later, he didn't even remember my name. Maybe he never even knew my name. But I'm still talking about this, you know, decades later. So so that's not very productive, right? Now I'm trying to use that to help other people think about, you know, when things happen and we have this self-talk, you know, we all tend to go back. We all tend to like focus on the gap rather than the gain. We tend to forget about celebrating ourselves and um, instead thinking about these negative things that happen. And the fact is it's not that big of a deal, right? I made a mistake, but it jumped to, I made it a big deal. And that was completely within myself, Yeah. right? He was kind of a jerk, you know, but we deal with work jerkery all the time. Right, right. And so this very much goes to kind of being aware. And I think also to this point of what were the other strategies you have at your disposal that maybe you're not tapping into, which very much is, you know, what the accelerator is helping people yeah. do and see strategies and knowing that you're not alone in, in this. And so I think that's very, very powerful. I do want to bring up the point here that we talk about Asian Americans and we talk about white people, but obviously these are large groups and there's a lot of difference within yeah. that. And, and we do, the Asian American experience is probably more similar than different within the subgroups. But just to ask you, as, as you've been working more with Asian Americans and we, we know the background here is more Chinese American, but you work with all types of Asian Americans, men and women. Any differences that you would kind of point out or have been surprised or learned from? 
Yeah, massive differences. So there are massive differences among the cultures, Asia, South Asia versus Southeast Asia and East Asia. And we talk about all of these. And also each one of us is an amalgamation, right? I grew up in a very traditional Chinese family, but I was also been very deeply influenced by Western cultures. And I'm an amalgamation of that. And I think, um, and we all are, you know, grew up in urban versus rural. We all are a whole amalgamation. So each of these cultures have very different, have a lot of differences, but then we each are very different from, you know, the mainstream of all the cultures that we grew up in. And I think that the main point here is whether you're Asian, East Asian, African-American, you know, white, whatever we grew up in, we all have a multiplicity of cultural influences. And we've all mashed that together into a unique way of looking at the world. And we all look at the world through cultural goggles that are unique to us. And misunderstandings happen when we expect other people to behave as if they're wearing our cultural goggles when they're not right? I kind of expected that vice chairman to behave to me in the same incredibly respectful way that I was brought up to behave with other people, but he was brought up in a different way. And I, um, and he behaves in a different way now. And so I think it's really, I think that the the main mistake that I was made when I was younger was I felt like I had to kind of suppress the essential part of me and be, and relate to other people by kind of being like them. But I think a much more mature way of looking at it is saying, like, I have my cultural goggles, I have my identity, I love myself, but I become very facile, very expert at switching out these goggles so that I can see other people for who they are and then learn to, learn to really deeply relate to and appreciate them. And sometimes we think about, like, white people versus all other people, but actually that's not the way that it is at all. You know, 71% of white employees call themselves allies to women of color. And I think we need to give white people greater, um, we need to do a better job sometimes of helping them relate to us. You know, rather than cover ourselves up, we're kind of assuming that you're gonna bully me like all those other kids bullied me growing up, but no. Most white people really are interested and want to help. So I think it's really up to us also to show them. And uh, there recently was a very great paper that came out from uh, Professor Rachel Arnett at uh, University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. She's half Asian like you. And she found that rather than cover up our own cultural identity, an even more effective way is to richly share. So instead of saying like, oh, try to hide. Everyone else is going to happy hour at the bar. And instead of hiding, oh, I'm going to my Asian ERG meeting to say, oh, you know, I'm so glad you guys are going out to the bar. I'm going off to my Asian ERG meeting. And I really love to do that because I'm half Asian. And sometimes I feel like I'm not so tied to the Asian side of me. So I love to go there and and get connected to that part of me and learn more about that part of me, right? So by doing something like that, sharing richly and vulnerably of who we are, we're giving people credit for, for wanting to relate to us. And we're giving an opening to relate to them on a really human level. That's what I mean about cultural fluency. I think that's the most important skill that we all can develop. 
You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. Yeah, this idea of cultural fluency and and leveraging our diversity, uh, given that we have both worked on the U.S.-China divide and we're in a very dicey area kind of globally with this now, I, I mean, I think this is one of the U.S.'s superpowers, one of the areas that we could be leveraging and, and really kind of is an amazing strength that this country has. So this whole topic is is very near and dear to my heart as well. Glad that you brought up the, the research from our net of, of strategies that we can use that are based on research. I'd also point out, I think you've seen it as well, the piece at MIT that does actually show South Asians are doing better in the States than East Asians in terms of the corporate ladder. But Jackson yeah, Jackson Lou's piece. This very much then taps into the other piece of the work you do, which connecting to leadership teams at the largest Fortune 50, 100 companies and having conversations about this. Because one, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's a very dicey area, particularly in the States right now, given events of the last five yeah. years and deeper with th- deeper historical roots. But having conversations about this, and like you said, most people, the vast majority of people want to make things better. And and I believe this is a very much a superpower of yours to being able to connect at that level. Tell us a little bit of kind of how you've been doing this and what's working in those conversations (laughs) and keynotes. Yeah, I've been working, I've been really thinking about this deeply because of all this anti-Asian hate in the last three years. And I've been thinking about how can we create ways of talking that um, ways of messaging that um, everyone can relate to. And um, so what I'm doing, I I put together um, a keynote that I've been giving, that I'm set to give for Asia Pacific American Heritage Month this year at a number of companies, Fortune 50 companies. And the title of it is Why Many Asians Don't Speak Up and how you can become a more effective leader of diverse teams. So this is aimed clearly not at Asians. It's aimed at all leaders and rising leaders at um, our biggest and most powerful companies. I think that it's just, I think the way to reach, at least the way that I try to reach them is just to be really fun and engaging. And because I feel like the conversation around race in America has been very fraught and and again, I think that sometimes if we read the media, we, f- we feel like America is so polarized, but actually it's not as polarized. Most people want to work effectively with other people. And so to reach to them on a very human level is what I've challenged myself to do. And um, so this question of why many Asians don't speak up, there's a lot of really fascinating cognitive psychology cultural anthropology behind it. It turns out that Asians actually think and reason in a less verbalizable way than Westerners. And so when you talk about bloviating, you know, sometimes like, you know, Westerners have these brainstorming meetings, like where they're talking out loud. So they might say like five things before they get to the sixth thing that is their conclusion. But because Asians think in a less verbalizable way, we're thinking, 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 
coming up with a conclusion, and then have to put it into words. But by the time we do that, the conversation may have turned and we kind of lost our opportunity. Um, when I talk to Asians, that happens all the time. So really, I think the challenge is, this is not political at all. How can we, we all have diverse teams. How can we make sure that every single member of our team is contributing fully? And in times of disruption, in times of economic uncertainty that we're all facing now, we want every member of our team to contribute fully. So how do we make action on that? And that's really, you know, so that's what I really work on doing. It's all about action, but in a fun way so people hang around. Yeah, can you talk <laughs> about the, the, the fun way? Because I do feel you inject humor, and not in a, in a belittling way, right? This is the part of sometimes stand-up comedians that drive me a little crazy. It goes very belittling. Oh. <laughs> but you use it in a, in a way that brings people together. And, and there's good research actually here around how humor can diffuse and connect. But how might someone out there think about how to use humor well? Is there, is there any lessons that you've learned? I think you do that very skillfully. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't really think of myself. Well, yeah, I guess, I guess if I was to be very tactical, I tend to, um, maybe I think what makes, to me, what makes things funny is you say things that kind of surprise people, but in a way that, as you say, doesn't harm anyone like for okay so on a very specific example right now just before we started today I'm, I'm working on this speech and I talk about the you know how we're all a multiplicity of cultures and that the way that we're raised influences how we think right so I talk about how America's kind of divided we've got um, you know urban and rural we've got liberals and conservatives and I say and not to get too controversial but we've got Tennis players and pickleball players, <laughs> you know, because I'm a pickleball player. And, and I'm yes. a tennis player, so there we go, right? Okay, that's a great so, example. So the thing is that, okay, so that's like just one example. So I, you know, it's sort of like I'm building up and people are like, uh-oh, liberals and conservatives. And, um, you know, it's like, where is this going? And say, so, you know, not to get too controversial, but the fact is tennis versus pickleball has been like the point of controversy in a lot of local communities, right? And um, so I think that sometimes it's just fun to, you know, I, I like to have fun. And I think that um, people learn best when they're having fun. It's true. And also because we're talking about topics that are really serious. And so anytime we can just make things fun. I don't try to think, I don't put pressure on myself to be funny. It's funny. You, you say that I'm funny. I don't think of myself as funny, but I just try to, you know, I guess I just try to say things that surprise people that don't hurt anybody. Yeah. And maybe get people a little bit suspenseful, like, uh-oh, where yeah. is she going with this? You know? <laughs> it's the formula for a great and engaging talk that, people take away key messages. Joy, we could talk about that this for a long time and, and in more depth, but I will point people to UAF, another great resource you have on your website around looking about how you build diverse teams. I know DEI is very much a key topic in organization, so it's great for leaders out there who are listening to think about how you get the best out of your team because research does show this gets you better results. I want to end with a final question which was very interesting as I, as I was, this just came onto my radar today because as I was thinking about 
your profile and, and, and reading about you, I was saying, you know, Joy reminds me, and I'm going to date myself a little bit here, of this other very famous Chinese entrepreneur businesswoman, and I will butcher her name because it's in Cantonese, is, is Yu Sai Khan, or, or Jin Yu Shi in, in, when it's pronounced in, in Mandarin. And she was one of the most powerful women in China as it was, it was emerging, businesswoman, entrepreneur, humanitarian. And then I learned, when I like Googled, that you had actually worked with her. And she wrote the forward to my famous and book. And she wrote the forward. And so I was like, oh my gosh, could you just share like what it was like to work with her or what, or what you took away from that? I think you're both very bold and, kind of, and very successful. Any reflections there that worth sharing? You know, I was 18 years old and a college student at Duke and I had read about her. And this is before the internet, right? I came across her, a profile of her in a, some magazine. I was like, who is this woman? She's incredible. And I wrote her a letter. Nice. <laughs> in the mail. Nice. And I said, I think that you're really interesting. And could I come work for you for free this summer? And she called me at my parents' house on old telephones. And she said, come on up for six weeks. If you can find a place to live, you can come and work with me. And um, it was an amazing experience. And to be honest, she, I didn't keep in touch with her. Again, this is before the internet and she was flying around the world. She was so big and powerful. But seeing her made me realize, and watching her up close, made me realize like, wow, maybe I could be a global entrepreneur someday. So then when I was contacted to write this book, I wrote her and I said, this is who I am. I don't know if you remember me. I don't think she did. <laughs> and um, would you do me the honor of writing the forward to my book? And she said, yes. And she wrote an incredible forward. She had read my whole book and she wrote the whole thing herself. Oh. So there's an example of, you know, she took her power all of the renown. She was the most famous woman in China she was, by then. Yeah. She had she had created this TV show called Looking West. That was like the way that a whole generation of Chinese in the 80s learned English. And then she turned into a cosmetics brand. And you know, she was the most powerful, famous woman in China. And no one in China knew me yet. I was just writing a book. And I had just said, I worked for you, you know, a couple decades ago. And she read my book and wrote the forward. Is that amazing? And uh, so she's, uh, you know, she's really an example. And I think the lesson to take away from that is sometimes because we work so hard to get power, we have a scarcity mentality about it. We think, oh, God, it took me so hard, so much. And then I'm just going to keep on working to get myself up to the next level. And, you know, the people behind me, they're just going to have to work as hard as I did. But actually, power grows when we give it away. So when we turn around and we help people and we do UAF that is actually meaningful and not just unpaid housework, we become more powerful. So that would be the lesson that I get from, from Yusai. She's always giving away her power and that paradoxically makes her more powerful. Yeah. Beautiful example, incredibly inspirational and a fantastic conversation that we've had here today, Joy. Joy Chen, CEO of the Multi- Cultural Leadership Institute, the MLI. Joy, I will put all these things in the show notes. Lots of UAF, great resources for AMU, and a fantastic discussion. Anything else you want to call out 
or to make sure that people can reach out or connect to your work? Other than that, um, Michael, it's been a delight to speak with you. I can tell you and I have just gotten to know each other in the last couple of months, but I can tell through your work, your book, the kind of UAF that you're putting out in the world through this podcast and through your social media that, you know, you're a, you know, as I said, when you first reached out to me, like, wow, it seems like you and I have walked in a lot of the same circles had a lot of the same life experiences. And I'm really amazed and impressed and inspired by how you have pulled together everything that you've done until now and use that to create ever greater value in the world. So thank you for your inspiration and example. Well, thank you. And together, we are all more powerful and we're forming a better world and a better place, better organizations and helping good people get ahead. Thank you, Joy. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.